welcome to the second in our podcast series here at St. John the Divine Kennington. This series is taking place during the Christian period of Lent, a period when we ask ourselves questions about who we are as a church, what we're doing in the world, and this year in particular, what justice is. We're thinking about justice in terms of our own church, and we're thinking about justice in terms of the world more widely. My name is Father Charlie Bell. I'm one of the curates here at St. John the Divine, and also practice as a psychiatrist in South London. I'm here to start the conversation that we're having, but I'm really honoured and delighted at the guests who are coming to join us to give us some more information on what they think justice is and to give us different ways of thinking about that question. Last week, we heard from some of the younger members of our congregation thinking about what is justice in the context of our own church. This week, I'm really delighted to have Dr. Emma Sear from the philosophy department at King's College London, who's joining us to answer that question, what is justice? And this week, particularly looking at the concept of epistemic justice. Emma, it's lovely to have you with us. Thanks for making the time to join us. Thank you for inviting me. Emma, I know you want to talk about um, something called epistemic justice. Um, Maybe you could say a little bit about that. Yes. So this is a very particular form of injustice, which really interests philosophers, but we'll see that it has much wider social implications. Um, This is an idea from a philosopher called Miranda Fricker. She works at the intersection of political philosophy, moral philosophy, and something called epistemology, which is the area of philosophy which investigates knowledge. Maybe you could give us a kind of example as to what that epistemology might mean for us in day-to-day life. How, How might we understand it? Sure. So it's thinking about things like what counts as knowledge? What's the relationship between belief and knowledge? How should we think of evidence? How should we think of justification? Mm, Okay, interesting. So in a sense, it's quite a kind of technical term, which nonetheless describes something which we're pretty much dealing with every day in in our kind of day-to-day interactions, whether that's in the church, in the world, wherever, really. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds very abstract, but has very real implications. So tell me a little bit about what, what Miranda Fricker has to say. So she's very interested in the idea that we don't always treat people fairly as knowers. And she thinks that this is a really important form of injustice. So normally, we like to think that we all have knowledge, we have understanding, we have rational beliefs, and we're all able to give and receive knowledge. We're doing this right now. So you've invited me here to talk about epistemic injustice, because you believe that I understand this notion and can tell you about it, and then you'll be able to understand it. So this is how we learn things and come to understand each other and the world. Yes, in a sense, I suppose part of what we're we're doing then when we're we're having these conversations or when we're we're having conversations about anything, when we're engaging with with any kind of form of knowledge, um, is that we are we're we're meeting people and we're already deciding whether or not that person has a particular right, perhaps, or a particular ability to speak about what it is that they're coming to talk to us about. Yes, and you'd hope that we are treating people 
fairly and equally when we do that, that the assumption is that they, they can tell us things, that we can trust what they're telling us, they know something, they can convey that to us and we can learn from them. But Miranda Fricker points out that this is not always the case, sadly. So what does she say? It's helpful to think about this firstly in terms of what we should be doing. So when we receive knowledge, we listen to each other, we give each other space to communicate, we take what someone says seriously, and we recognise that they have some knowledge which they can communicate and share with us. When we give knowledge, obviously we're sharing that knowledge, but we're accepting that the other person is able to take up knowledge, that they are able to learn, that they are able to understand. So this is the process and the ideal model of giving and receiving knowledge. And I suppose in a sense, and therefore, it's, it's, it's those of us who are receiving, but also those of us who are giving. So it's, it's, it, this is actually a concept of knowledge as being a two-way process. You don't get anywhere by, um, by, by ignoring the person to whom you're giving the knowledge. And similarly, when you're receiving knowledge, you're both being taken seriously or not being taken seriously, whilst the person who's giving or taking, uh, giving, giving the knowledge themselves is either being taken seriously or not being taken seriously. So it's quite complicated. It's quite a complex dance between different individuals, I suppose. Right, a very complicated dance. And there are several ways in which it can go wrong. And what I'd really like to, to think about, and Fricka goes into this, is the various problems that arise when we're not doing the dance properly. So she thinks that when we fail to treat each other as knowers, we are being unjust. We're wronging people in a very specific way in their capacity as knowers. And what what does that concept of knowers mean? How might you you kind of um, describe that? What what is a knower? Well, a knower is someone whose testimony is seen as being credible. So what Mm. that means is is that you take someone seriously, that you accept what they're telling you, you work on the assumption that they do know something and that they're able to communicate that to you. Okay, interesting. So really, this could be anything from, I don't know, talking to somebody, talking, I guess, to even to friends, talking to people about things which... Um, which we're talking to people about things which you talk about in your day-to-day lives, but also right the way up to things like engagement with the police, with statutory services, with the courts, with doctors, with anybody, in a sense. It's, it's any of those conversations where actually someone is a knower in some way, someone has knowledge in some way. Yeah, so you can see that it permeates everything, really. So mm. if this is not happening as it should be, this becomes a very, very dangerous form of injustice. And the reason for that, according to Fricker, is that it can allow certain groups in society to dominate. So you can imagine if if only one group is viewed as capable of giving and receiving knowledge as knowers, then this is really a surefire way to ensure that they are in charge of things, if only they can understand things, if only they can communicate knowledge, only their words will be trusted. So you can see how, if this is the case, this group will monopolize things like education and knowledge. And you can really start to see the link between knowledge and power here. I guess in a sense, knowledge and power have always been 
associated. I mean, it's a kind of anecdotal thing, isn't it, that knowledge is power. But but in a sense, I suppose what we're talking about here is really understanding why um, and how people with knowledge or those who are presumed to be true people with knowledge, people with better knowledge or better knowers, how they end up essentially um, not only being taken more seriously, but ultimately kind of drawing, drawing the rules of the game up. And this is what Fricker really wants to highlight, that if you start thinking about knowledge in this way and epistemic injustice, this is really going to inform how we think about politics, how we think about social justice or injustice. Um, so you can start to see how these ideas link up. Okay, so let's unpack that idea a bit. Um, so in a sense, you, you've explained that um, epistemic injustice is is when you're doing wrong to people um, as knowers, as people with knowledge. How, how does that kind of thing happen? There are various different ways that this can happen. So one big systemic way epistemic injustice occurs is through the distribution of knowledge. Does everyone get their fair share? Is education, for example, accessible to everyone or is it limited to certain groups? So you can think about, for instance, how schooling is is not always open to girls. You can think about the wider economic environment and how that might influence access to education. Um, Some children and teenagers will have to leave school early because they need to work and provide for the household or perhaps they need to care for someone. So your access could be limited for those reasons. And I suppose in that case, you're also then cementing it into the whole structures of society. So it's not just in that generation, but generation after generation will be then stuck with these um, what are essentially injustices of knowledge from, from, from one place to another, from one generation to another, and so on. Yes, exactly. So you, Miranda Fricker wants to show that this is a way of cementing hierarchies, cementing certain dynamics, and, and you can see really long-standing effects of this. So if we think about just how information is, is distributed, a, a really good example of this actually comes from one of my students who told me a story about how in high school the girls and boys were separated for a talk and the girls received a talk on menstruation while the boys received a talk on leadership. So I think this is a really great example of how an unequal distribution of information is is harmful to all parties because the result was that both groups had very impoverished knowledge and understanding of these topics. I guess in a sense that's probably come from perhaps a place of not knowing or a place of prejudice or and it's quite difficult to tease those different things out because for some people they'll say well that was just because um, it was thought at the time that that was the appropriate thing to teach girls for example and why would boys need to know about that but actually you end up then and, and of course the leadership um, teaching is not something which should be separated to either boys or girls but, but you can see how these things these kind of sim- what seem like simple choices can really lead to really really negative long-term outcomes because you've essentially segregated information segregated education albeit from perhaps a position of ignorance at, at best and perhaps willful ignorance at worst i suppose there are real world consequences to a lot of this as well 
Yeah, very much so. So with that example, think about how women's health research into that is underfunded. Arguably, that's due to a lack of understanding, which unfortunately often translates into that area being viewed as as somehow less important, medically speaking. If we think about the leadership factor, we know that the percentage of women in CEO positions is significantly lower than the percentage of men. So the World Economic Forum tells us that only 15% of CEO roles are held by women in Fortune 500 companies. And of course, there will be a whole host of reasons for, for why that is. But one of them will likely be that women have internalized this view that CEOs are men. And this is precisely the view that will be reinforced by the boys getting the leadership talk while the girls get the periods talk. So no wonder that we end up with these real world consequences if this is how we are distributing information and knowledge. So I suppose therefore we've seen how this kind of injustice can have real world implications moving out from a talk at a school and the way that talks at schools are organised to how whole societies, I suppose, can, can work. Can you give me an example on an individual level how this might how this might impact people? Yeah, so thinking about individuals and exchanges of knowledge between individuals, epistemic injustice can occur if someone's testimony is given less credibility than it deserves. So what this really means is that you're not listening to someone properly or indeed at all, or you just don't take them seriously. And the reason for this will be because the person who's being spoken to harbours some kind of prejudice towards the person speaking. This could be an explicit prejudice or it could be an implicit bias. But either way, there will be certain stereotypes attached to the prejudice which will determine how credible someone's testimony is to the hearer. Can you give me an example? Yeah, sure. Well, let's use us as an example. You've invited me to give a talk today, um, but there are various prejudices which you could hold, which might mean that you don't listen to me properly or you dismiss what I say. So, for instance, you could be a sexist and think, oh, she's a woman, she won't really know what she's talking about, she's probably going to get overly emotional about this. Or maybe you've looked at my surname and thought to to yourself, hmm, I don't really know how to pronounce this. It doesn't sound like she's English. Is she really going to be able to talk about injustice clearly and coherently for 30 minutes? Maybe if I'd introduced myself using the title Ms rather than Doctor, you might think that I'm just not going to be an authority in any way and you probably need to get in a proper academic to discuss injustice with. So whatever the prejudice is, the result is that there will be a lack of confidence in my testimony. You won't trust what I tell you, or you end up ignoring it completely. And what kind of ways might we see that in in this kind of conversation, for example? This could manifest in several different ways. So maybe you cut me off when I'm talking. Maybe you start talking over me. Maybe you don't bother to give me any interesting questions because you haven't really engaged with what I'm saying. And 
maybe you even engage in some mansplaining where you explain the concepts back to me. All immensely frustrating options. That doesn't sound like something I'd want to be engaged in, but I suppose part of this Lent series is recognising when, even when it's uncomfortable, we do engage in in ways of behaving towards people or with people that are ultimately really unjust. Yeah, and I think this is why it's important to talk about something like epistemic injustice, because it, it gets you to reflect and, and consider your interactions and, and consider how they could be improved. One of the things we've been thinking about in this podcast series in particular has been racial justice um, and the impact of, of racism and, and, and wider prejudice on, on social relations. Does, does Fricker talk about racial injustice at all as, as an example of epistemic injustice? She talks about how something like testimonial injustice could fuel social injustice and, and specifically racial injustice. The example she actually uses in her book is about how Duane Brooks's testimony was treated by the London Met police. Um, Duane Brooks actually witnessed the murder of his friend Stephen Lawrence, which, as we know, was a racially motivated attack. So he witnessed this and he gave the police vital information. So the key thing here was that Duane knew the area. He knew where the assailants had last been seen and he gave this information to the police. But this information was ignored. And in fact, Duane was treated as a suspect rather than as a witness. Why was this? because the officers failed to view Duane Brooks as credible, largely due to racial bias. So the following is is actually from the official inquiry, and it says that the officers failed to concentrate upon Mr Brooks and to follow energetically the information which he gave them. Nobody appears properly to have tried to calm him or to accept that what he said was true. It's interesting, isn't it, that... There's such a role for this kind of injustice in our institutions. It's not just the police, although, of course, unfortunately, this is not the last time that we've heard of, of, of failings in police forces in terms of, of, of taking particularly black communities seriously. But we see it across the board. You know, I'm thinking in my own life in, in medicine, um, I'm sure there's an element of, of this taking place. I see it in the church. Um, you know, we hear many, many um, calls for racial justice in the church, but so infrequently do we engage with the kind of underlying causes and reasons for that injustice. And instead, we often tinker around the edge with the kind of surface stuff. Um, and it sounds to me like this is the kind of thing that, that, you know, all of us who are in some way engaged in institutions could actually do with taking seriously. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is really at the heart of it, to, to trying to imagine what it must be like to not be believed, to not be taken seriously, and the effect that would have on you and, and your community is unthinkable, really, isn't it? But this goes on. And I suppose the more that we have people in society um, and in leadership in different institutions in different parts of, of public life, the more that we have people who for whom this is this is unthinkable, 
the more that this is actually something which they just simply have never and will never experience, um, the more that this becomes seen as a kind of fringe issue or something that's not important. Whereas actually, this is pretty fundamental to how we exist as a, as a just society, or at least as a slightly less unjust society. Yes, and I think what you said about not having experienced something yourself quite nicely <laughs> brings me to the, the last form of epistemic injustice Fricker talks about. And this is to do with how we interpret our experiences, whether we can make sense of them, do we have the resources to do so, and can other people make sense of our experiences? So this is something called hermeneutical injustice. And put simply, if there are no concepts or words to describe an experience, someone who's gone through that experience will not be able to make sense of it or to communicate it to others. And again, I suppose this is thinking from an institutional perspective, and I don't want to let individuals off the hook. And of course, the kind of injustice that we all live around is, is a mixture of the institution and the individual. But in a sense, this is another opportunity for institutions or those at the top of institutions to, to prevent people from having the language and therefore actually cementing yet again injustice into day-to-day life by virtue of actually withholding the ability for people to even name the experience that they're having. Yeah, and this is a very powerful thing to be able to name the experience. This is really a gateway to, to change things. And if you don't have that, you, you are very much stuck. So Fricker uses the example of um, the term sexual harassment. So this only came into use really in the 1970s. So what happened before the term was introduced? Well, we know that, of course, sexual harassment was still taking place. But the point is that someone who was experiencing that wouldn't have been able to name the experience, to articulate it. And when we name something, it becomes easier to understand, easier to acknowledge that it's taking place and easier to interrogate it and to demand change. I guess until you've got the words and the concepts, it's quite difficult to actually determine what's going on. Yeah, and it's hugely alienating. If, if you don't have those words or those concepts, you can't make sense of what's happening to you. This is a very lonely experience. But even more than that, it can cause you to doubt yourself as a knower. So if you can't describe what's happening to you, you might start to wonder, well, is it really happening? Am, am I just being a bit paranoid here? Am I imagining things? And you can see how this would lead to a total lack of, of self-confidence in your capacity as a knower and your ability to communicate to others. Yeah, and I suppose in a sense, it gets even worse when you're not sharing a common language. And I don't mean a, a language as in, you know, French, English, Yoruba, whatever it is. I mean a language in terms of a kind of social language, a social or an emotional language. Yeah, so it might be the case that you do have the words and the concepts and you can describe that experience and you try to communicate it to others, but they might not be able to understand that experience, maybe because they haven't 
themselves on through that. And because of that lack of familiarity, they don't have the conceptual resources. They don't have the language for it, the words for it. And that means they just don't really understand it. And you can imagine that, again, this is going to be an incredibly isolating experience, not being understood by others. And we can even have cases where a community's concepts and categories have been usurped and replaced entirely. So the political theorist Rajiv Bhagava uses the example of colonialism as a case where this has happened and colonising powers have effectively removed an entire pre-existing framework of, of meaning which had previously allowed people to make sense of their lives. And if that's taken away, again, you, you can understand how disorientating that must be and how you, you must end up feeling very powerless. I suppose in a sense, there's some questions for us as a church and as a, as a church that's, that's intricately entangled with colonialism, with the history of the, the Anglican Communion and the history of, of colonial powers and particularly, you know, the, 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 the English, the British colonial power pushing at not only a religion, um, but also a whole way of thinking about religion, a whole way of thinking about life around the world. And then now being surprised when people don't necessarily agree with Western ways of thinking. It's kind of understandable. And yet we are the architects of our own damage. Emma, I suppose um, one question I have is whether there's a link between these different kinds of injustice. Yes. Yes, there is. So if the unfair distribution of things like education and information persists, this is inevitably going to lead to hermeneutical injustice. So to give you an example, if girls and women are not educated or do not receive information about things like sexual harassment, then they won't have the words, they won't have the concepts to describe that particular phenomenon. And Fricker herself directly links these two forms of injustice and talks about how the whole reason why it took until the 1970s to get the term sexual harassment is because historically women have been excluded from the shaping of the English language. They've been excluded from key institutions and industries that help people make sense of their experiences, like uh, the law, like academia, publishing, journalism. And it brings us back to that real link between the individual and the institutional, um, which I think may well become a theme of these podcasts, really, which is we can't ignore the institutional in the context of injustice. And actually, it may be individuals within those institutions pushing or being in the majority cases of, of, of trying to, um, to, to push that injustice for their own benefit. But actually, by taking over an institution, that has an enormous impact on the ability of society more widely to actually combat that injustice. And in, in the words of, you know, the way you've described today, in, in fact, even naming the injustice. Whether we like it or not, we, we are all part of society, the institutions determine how our lives are to, to a huge extent. And if we are seeing cases of epistemic injustice within those institutions, this is a real problem. This has very, very real world 
consequences for people for as individuals but also as communities and and this is something that we really need to think about very carefully. I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about what the results of epistemic injustice um, look like. Well one thing which often happens is something called testimonial smothering. So this is a phenomenon where speakers actually end up silencing themselves because they worry that their testimony will be ignored or it will be misinterpreted in some way. Perhaps that's happened to them in the past. And because this is an appalling experience to go through, they self-censor. It's easier to avoid this. They, they avoid it by just not saying anything, remaining silent. So actually, in a sense, we're forcing people into their own silencing. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what happens. And you can see how, aside from the, the wider outcomes like social injustice and racial injustice, you will end up, as a society, with very impoverished knowledge more broadly. If you are essentially excluding certain groups and voices, either directly or they are self-silencing, then you're missing out on an awful lot. So Emma, what can we do to combat this kind of injustice? Because I'm sure everybody listening will be convinced as to its importance, but also many of us will want to do something about it. So what can we do? I'd say the first step is to try to remove prejudices as a society. So you and I have spoken a lot about institutions, the role of institutions. This is the first thing to do. This will happen through education. It will happen through ensuring that there's more diverse representation in institutions. So I think that is the initial process which needs to take place. But we also need to think about removing our prejudices as individuals. And this is going to be quite complicated if what we're dealing with are implicit biases. And can you give me a kind of example of that? Yeah, so the the thing about implicit biases is that they're, they're difficult to spot, they're difficult to get a grip on. So you have to do quite a lot of work to try to bring them to light. And I suppose one way to try to do this is to pay attention to how you interact with others. But it may just be that you need to put certain measures in place to offset implicit biases. Um, That might be measures like anonymous marking, if we're thinking about um, the education sector. It might be blind hiring. These are concrete steps that we can take to to work against implicit biases. And you mentioned hermeneutical injustice as well, the kind of the injustice that leads people to be unable to name what it is that's happening to them. Is there anything we can do about that? I think when it comes to offsetting hermeneutical injustice, one way forward could be to consider how we listen. Do we give people time and space to communicate with us? Are we patient with them if they struggle to articulate things? Do we immediately try to assimilate what's being said into our own experience? Or do we try to understand the person on their own terms? 
this is a very natural thing for us to do. We often try to assimilate things to our own frameworks, but trying to resist that, I think, is, is important in these kinds of cases. Thinking about language as well, we've spoken about how hermeneutical injustice means there's, there's a deficit of, of words and concepts. What can we do about that? Are we updating our language to account for more experiences? Are we trying to expand our conceptual frameworks? I don't think there is an instant fix for any of this, but hopefully by taking these kinds of steps, there can be gradual and consistent progress. Thanks, Emma. I mean, that's been a really fruitful conversation. I'm really, really grateful to you for joining us. Um, I hope I've kept my mansplaining to a minimum during, uh, during the course of the conversation. And, um, and there's a lot to think about. There's a lot to think about for us as the church, um, whether that's us as St John the Divine or whether that's us as a church more widely um, as an institution, but an institution made up of people and an institution which, like many other institutions, is not really yet reflective of the wider society in the country. Um, and I think that's probably something we need to do a bit more thinking about, not just tinkering around the edges, but actually getting to the, to the grips with some of the serious and deep underlying problems, which some of which you've highlighted today. So thanks so much for joining us. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us for the second podcast in our series. Again, maybe things from today's podcast will have chimed with you, perhaps some things you'll have been really challenged by, and some things will be more recognisable to you than others. Maybe what Emma said has given you language to describe what you have recognised in your own life. All of us come to these conversations with our own biases and self-understandings and our own baggage. And the issue, of course, is that as Christians, we're told that harm done to one part of the body is done to the whole body of Christ. And so we can't just ignore these things, whether that's the theoretical or the abstract or the day-to-day lived experiences of us all. A quick plug for our podcast series. We continue next week with the third in our series of podcasts. And as ever, St. John the Divine offers the Mass at 10.30 on a Sunday morning and Stations of the Cross at 7 o'clock on a Wednesday evening, to which you'd be most welcome. For more information on what we offer at St. John the Divine, please do visit our website at www.sjdk.org. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Emma once again for joining us and see you all next week.